Welcome to episode 48 of the 75 Greatest Marvels Unofficial Countdown Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And we've got one of our most frequent co-hosts here, actually the most frequent co-host, on the show back with us again. So welcome aboard, John M. Wilson. I just can't quit you, Blaine. Oh, yes. Well, got to do something when your back breaks. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, I'm, I'm glad to be back. I'm, I'm glad to talk about the book we're going to be talking about today. If you're going to put something on the list, this is one of those that deserves to be on the list. Maybe more for what it does than for the story itself. In the list of Marvel covers and Marvel stories that have been hugely important to the history of the company, this is high on the list. Yeah. And he is, of course, talking about Giant Size X-Men number one. Woohoo! In which case, most of the conversation is going to be the lead story rather than the three backups. The lead story being Second Genesis, written by Len Wein, penciled and inked by Dave Cockrum, colored by Glynis Oliver Wein, lettered by John Costanza, and edited by Len Wein. Cover date was May 1975, and released April 1st, 1975. Countdown rank number 48. Now, the three backup stories are not always included in reprint copies. They are actually backups from the original run of the X-Men. Because X-Men had been canceled with issue 66 and was in reprints. And they were I think they were trying to get the entire run reprinted before moving into new stories. And so the backups in this were some of the most recent issues that had not yet been reprinted. Uh, some of they were actually backups. They weren't full issues. One of the things that they were doing to cut costs on the X-Men book when it wasn't performing quite up to speed in the 40s and 50s was putting in little backups about the, the character powers with different creative teams. I don't have it in front of me. This issue reprints the origin story backups? There, there were origin story backups, but what it actually reprints this time were the power description backups. Oh, okay. So okay. we've got Call Him Cyclops, reprinted from Uncanny X-Men number 43. And that one was written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Werner Roth, inked by John Verporten, lettered by Artie Symek, edited by Stan Lee. And I don't know who colored it because coloring credits were not in use, generally speaking, at the time. Then we have I, the Iceman, reprinted from issue 47, written by Arnold Drake, penciled by Werner Roth, inked by John Verporten, lettered by Joe Rosen, and edited by Stan Lee. And the last of them is The Female of the Species, which is reprinted from issue 57, written by Linda Fight, penciled again by Werner Roth, so he ended up penciling all three of these, inked by Sam Granger. The letterist credit was left out, which means it could very well have been Werner Roth as well, and it was edited again by Stan Lee. I suppose it could have also been Sam Granger doing the lettering, or some completely different person, they just forgot to credit them. Interesting. Okay, so probably during the course of the reprints of the other issues, these might have been left out. In any case, it's a bit of an odd collection, because you have the story that introduces a whole new team of X-Men, and then yeah. you have backups that focus on characters, well, Iceman and Jean Grey, who were not going to be part of the new team. Yeah, it, it did surprise me. Um, we'll get into this a little more later, but... I've read all these. I'm reading my copy off the DVD-ROM. So it is PDF scans of the original issues as they were first published. And I've actually read X-Men, everything from X-Men number one, including all the tie-ins right up until about 1989, with the exception of the New Mutants after Chris Claremont, because those have not been collected in any form I've been able to easily track down. You have about 10 years on me. I've read up to about 7980 okay. with the intent to... Continue forward whenever we get to new, whenever you get to New Mutants and I'm reading along with you. I'm going to read all of the X Men that were going along at that time as well. So it'll be it'll be a fun reading experience for me. Okay. You don't have to do that for the show, but that's what I'm doing for the for my own benefit. <laughs> okay, so for the sake of the listeners at home, yes, these are being recorded out of order. So by the time you hear this, John will have read oh. those issues because we're already through the, the New Mutants. Sorry about that. Yeah, I don't oh, want to cut that. That's fine. <laughs> well, We'll leave it in. It's nice to pull okay. the curtain back once in a while. But yeah, it's in terms of the inclusion of those backups, there's nothing wrong with those backups, but it's the same page count as a four-issue story of how Cyclops met Professor X and the first adventure they had together. And I'm surprised that they didn't reprint that story in its entirety instead. Instead, yeah. Yeah. I Personally, had it been up to me, I think that would have been a better choice. When I say same page count, it might have been two pages more, so that could have been the reason for it. You either have to pay someone to take that exacto and cut pages or panels out to reformat that story, 
or you'll lose two pages of ads. And this was a bit of a, a, a tenuous publication project. So we should go through a little bit of the history of the X-Men up to this point. Okay. So, as John Wilson mentioned, yeah, the X-Men was canceled. In the, the final new issue for a long time was issue 66. The decision to cancel was actually quite a bit sooner. It got extended because of Neil Adams. Neil Adams was an artist who'd been working with Batman primarily through the Brave and the Bold title with DC, and he was making major waves because he was a very good artist with a style that didn't match anyone else. Very dynamic panels, very energetic storytelling. It's worth mentioning, though, just for context, that this is before his acclaimed Batman at Romathenny O'Neill. So he was yes. gaining popularity on Baver and the Bold, but had not yet gone on to do the acclaimed Bronze Age Romathenny O'Neill. That's correct, yeah. And one of the things that he was not happy with with DC is that the artists had very little influence over the stories. So they worked from what they call full script. The writers would hand them scripts saying, in this panel, you've got your camera positioned here. You can see this. So it's what Neil Adams has described as more of a pencil pusher. And he wanted to have more input in the story. Some writers were open to conversations in advance, but whatever input he gave to them went into the script. And then he had to draw that script exactly the way that they wrote it. So if you couldn't get in preemptively, you couldn't change it once the script was handed to you. Whereas Marvel at the time was doing what's now often referred to as the Marvel method, even though they didn't invent it by any means. At one point in the 50s, Marvel, when it was still Atlas Comics, was in financial trouble, as were a lot of comic companies following Seduction of the Innocent and Frederick Wortham and all that stuff. And Stanley, as editor, was paranoid about missing deadlines. So he had asked all of his creative teams, his writers, his artists, everyone, Every book that they had was six months ahead. So every book had six months worth of issues beyond what they really needed to for the publication schedule in the drawer. And when they were strapped for, for money and the, the bosses found that out, they cut all salaried staff and just ran on that backlog for six months. And then when they had to continue it and things hadn't bounced back quite as high as they'd hoped for, what they ended up doing was bringing in artists because Stanley couldn't draw and had Stanley write everything. And you can't keep up writing that many books a month if you're doing it all. So the coping mechanism they came up with, just so Stan didn't burn out, was to have Stan just give rough outlines of stories to the artists and then have the artists interpret that story, which gave them a lot of creative freedom. And this is where you have guys like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko just utterly excelling in this format because they are inherently great storytellers. And then Stanley would go through and put in the captions after the fact. So that kind of creative freedom really appealed to Neil Adams, but he'd never drawn that way before. So he came over to the Marvel offices and said, I want to draw for you. I want to try this method, but I don't know that I can do it. Marvel was ready to line up to have him on the Avengers because that was their number one selling title. They wanted that superstar on it. They wanted it to go that way. And Neil Adams was going, no, no, no. If I'm going to fall flat on my face, I don't want people to notice that. What's your lowest selling title? The response mm. was the X-Men. That one's about to be canceled. And he says, okay, I will take that book. So they extended it nine issues to put Neil Adams on pencils and see what he could do on the condition that once he was done with that, he came over and did the Avengers. And that the Kree Skrull War is another episode of this podcast. Which I will be here for. Yeah. <laughs> so he did that X-Men run and it was a shot in the arm and it really brought the book up into new levels of creativity. It brought Professor X back from the dead. It introduced Havoc. It did a lot for the X-Men as a group of characters and as a team. And it was enough to bring the sales up to the point where they realized, you know, now we've got attention on this book from people who didn't read issues before Neil Adams. So following issue 66, that's when they went to the reprint format that John mentioned, where they would reprint two of these issues from before Neil Adams with each comic. And they started back at a different point in the run, skipped the first couple of issues so that if you hadn't read before Neil Adams, when you're reading after issue 66, it felt like new stories in a somewhat continuous fashion they fiddled around with some of the reprint sequence so it's a little bit off but generally speaking you could read through now coming into the 70s they were having meetings in the marvel offices the x-men book was almost out of reprint content so they were going to have to either start telling new stories with it again or end the series and the marketing guys were in the room saying you know we've got some countries around the world where marvel books are selling disproportionately well if we could come up with heroes from these countries then maybe it would engage those audiences and drive the sales up even further. And editorial decided, well, let's do that with the X-Men, tell new stories with an international team, and try to grab these markets. So that was the impetus behind it, because the X-Men as mutants are not tied to any geography. All you need is humans procreating, which 
as far as natural human evolution goes, means these guys can come from pretty much everywhere but Antarctica. So that was the impetus. And then as Len Wein is quite happy to tell people when he discusses it, and I highly recommend listening to the Nerdist Writers Panel comic edition. He's on it very frequently as one of the regular hosts, and he's discussed a lot of this in detail. The bigwigs at Marvel came to Len Wein and said, hey, this is what we're going for, right? So he and Dave Cochran have a bunch of ideas. Some of these characters were guys that Dave Cochran had lined up for a Legion title or other DC titles rather than this one. But they said, you know, we want to hit this international market. We want this international team. We want it to be the X-Men. Are you gung-ho for it? And Len Wein was going, yeah, he's one of those readers that jumped on in the Neil Adams era of X-Men. And he was excited by it, as was his assistant, Chris Claremont, who was working with things. They were both excited by it. And Claremont would take over the, the series very shortly after this title. The one thing that they forgot to tell him was which countries had the highest sales. So they want this international team to grab markets in these countries where Marvel's selling really well, and they forgot to tell the writers which countries those were. So they just had to pick countries at random? <laughs> yeah, so Len Wein and Dave Cochran just made up characters from countries that they wanted to write about and felt they could do. Okay. And that was this team. With with uh, largely new characters. I mean, you only have, what, Banshee and Wolverine and Cyclops had already been established. Banshee was a, a well-known X-Men character. Wolverine was a random one-off Len Wein character from Incredible Hulk. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Cyclops was the leader, but I that, the, there were no other existing characters on the new team, right? Right, yeah. Thunderbird, Nightcrawler, Storm, and Colossus were all created specifically for this issue. Okay. So Storm is a combination of appearances and power sets of some of Dave Cockrum's designs for another book. It's actually the appearance of a character called the Cat and the weather control powers of someone else. Similarly, Nightcrawler's outward appearance came from one of those characters, even though everything about his personality changed. Yeah, I think his power set, the whole shadow thing that he was doing was also there. Yeah. I remember reading in the letters columns during the gap between the two books, it's like when people would write into Spider-Man and uh, Avengers and whatever and say, well, by the way, where are the X-Men coming back? It was about mm -hmm. a year, a year and a half before this book hit that I remember them reading it saying, we have something very definite that we're cooking up that's in the mix. We can't give you details right now, but it is coming. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was just Marvel talking because editors will say things or if that was actually <laughs> how far back the beginnings of this book went based on the way lean len Wein talks about it i don't think they had that much lean time they might have been referring to beast's amazing adventures run because the, the character of beast had a run of solo stories in amazing adventures yeah i think that was like 1972 it was it was after that it doesn't matter because it, it's ultimately mm -hmm. not really any way of knowing but but Marvel was definitely aware that people wanted the X-Men, and so they were talking about it in the letters. They 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 wanted to bring the X-Men back, but finding a way to make it successful, because like you mm -hmm. said, it was their lowest-selling book. There's no reason to bring back the lowest-selling book just to once again be the lowest-selling book. Mm -hmm. Getting an idea and getting uh, something on the table was probably very exciting for them. Yeah, and it's possible that the, the sales and marketing departments and editorial had decided to do the international team to tap into that market at that point, but because they still had reprint material, hadn't bothered to go find a creative team. So that yeah. Wayne didn't have that much lead time, but the people above him who gave him the assignment knew what was coming. That makes sense. Yeah. So anyway, so we will focus on the second Genesis story. As we said, there's three backups, but they're all four or five pages of here's my powers and how they work. <laughs> and that's essentially it for all of those characters. So it, well, we've got that classic, classic cover of the new team tearing a hole through the cover with the old team kind of an off blue and pale colored behind them with the new Deadly Genesis on that cover. And when I say classic, I mean it has been spoofed and modeled more than once. On later issues of Giant Size X-Men, on Marvel Zombies, on X-Men Deadly Genesis, it, it's one of those iconic images. It's funny that you mentioned later issues of Giant Size X-Men, because this is the only one that ever gets talked about. But there mm -hmm. was a second issue just a few months later that was totally reprints. And of course, they brought back the title in more recent years. Yeah. But yeah, I love, love this cover. You have the original X-Men being replaced by these new guys. So Cyclops ends up appearing twice on the page because he's with the old team and with the new team. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it is definitely eye-catching. And if if I were in the shops in 1975 and I were wanting the X-Men to come back, I would definitely be saying, what? I need this. It is that kind of a cover. It is pretty tantamount. It, it is, as you said, very eye-catching. And it, it does speak to the power of the X-Men. And there were some fans out there looking for it, that there's only one of the five founding members that joins the team. 
so th there were more than five members when the series ended. We also had Havoc and Polaris and some other characters involved. Cyclops is the only of the original five that joins the team. Right off the bat, Jean Grey is a supporting character from the start and becomes a lot more active as the run continues. Beast at this point already is an Avenger. Angel and Iceman had been uh, champions, but that was done. Yeah, that was no, that was going when it started. So they were busy. Yeah, the first issue of the Champions actually came out. It was cover dated October 1975. Okay, so it came out just shortly after this. So when they when they brought back the X Men for this, they gave Angel and Iceman a home on another team. Yeah, and even though it's not on the 75, I do have to say the Champions, great fun Bronze Age comics, definitely worth your time. Yeah, I've got both volumes of the classic that collect it all, and it's Angel, Iceman, Ghost Rider, Hercules, led by Black Widow. I mean, like, I have no idea who thought of that mix of characters, <laughs> but it is a very, very fun book. And it's one of those, in classic 70s style, it ends with a few plot threads dangling, so it gets wrapped up in Marvel Team Up. Yep. Yeah, and it's it actually picks up with some dangling plot threads from uh, Daredevil as well. Yeah, Daredevil and Black Widow, yeah. Yeah. For more on that, check out one of my past episodes, the 50th anniversary special of Dave's Daredevil podcast. I talk a little bit about Black Widow's departure from the book on Yay. that one. But the the core idea of this series isn't even established on page one. We don't know initially what has happened between the teams. Going through it, so the roster of the new team, in more detail, we end up with several characters. And actually going through it now, there's more that we haven't talked about. The first thing we see is a very demonic individual, who we later learn is Nightcrawler, a.k.a. Kurt Wagner, running from your classic angry mob with torches and pitchforks in some rustic European town. That happens in Germany. Yeah. Everybody gets their own pitchforks and torches whenever they're uh, 13 years old. Oh, yeah. So they can, they can run through villages with them. Yeah, and all of a sudden the crowd stops, Professor X is there and says, you know, you're a mutant, and I can help you find your potential. And Nightcrawler's immediate reaction is, can you help me be normal? After tonight's misfortune, Kurt... Would you really want to be? And Kurt Wagner says, well, perhaps not. I want only to be a whole Kurt Wagner. And if you can help make me that teacher, I will go with you. Next up, Professor X recruits Wolverine with a rather interesting negotiation. He's Professor X has enough political pull that he can walk into the Canadian Secret Service and say, I need to speak to your agent. And, you know, the Canadian government is saying, well, all we know is that he's here to make you some sort of offer. And... Professor X says, okay, I know of your recent battle with the Hulk, and moreover, I know of your powers. You, my friend, are a mutant, and I have need of mutants, including you. I'm offering you a chance to become a free agent and put your powers to greater use. And Wolverine quits. Meanwhile, his boss is in the room going, whoa, 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 what, what, what's going on? No, 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 this isn't happening. <laughs> no one asked me. <laughs> and just a fun little note for Wolverine enthusiasts who might not know his early history. This is the first time we see Wolverine without his claws out. Because in his first Hulk appearance, he had them out the entire time. And a casual reader might have thought that maybe he just always had claws on his hands. But he shows up here with regular mm -hmm. hands and he, he uh, lets go one of his claws in basic middle finger style yeah. in the course of the story. But that that's this is where we find out that his claws are retractable. We still yeah. don't know that they're in his arms. That's a reveal that comes later. But, but yeah. 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 This is the first snicked as he pops a claw to cut off his boss's tie and say... It's still a free country, isn't it? So I'm resigning my commission, effective immediately. Unless, of course, you have any further objections. I didn't think so. With the claw right on the guy's nose. And his bo former boss says, Believe me, mister, you haven't heard the last of me. Wolverine says, Anytime you want me, you know where to come looking. Come on, prof, let's go. <laughs> and that happens. And in true Chris Claremont fashion, because Claremont is writing the book at that time, it happens almost 20 issues later, or over 20 issues later, by the time... Yeah. Well, the first round with Vindicator is less than 20 issues, and then the rest of Alpha Flight is more than 20. Following this, we see Professor X recruit Banshee in all of two panels, because he was one of the established characters. He then travels to Africa, specifically Kenya or Kenya. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I've always heard it, Kenya. That's what I've always but heard. There may, but... there may be a native pronunciation that's different. Yeah, there was a, a local radio personality who was apparently named after the country and pronounced it Kenya, but I don't know if her parents were pronouncing it correctly. So... <laughs> So uh, in the span of what adds up to about two pages, Professor X also recruits Storm, who is currently being worshipped as a weather goddess in Kenya or Kenya. Following that, it takes him about two panels to recruit Sunfire, who we missed earlier, but he is also an established character and had appeared in earlier issues of the X-Men. He was not part of the team, though. No, he wasn't. He was a mutant they had encountered a few times and considered for team membership, but 
Sunfire is a jerk, so they never got him on part of the team. Yeah, and we we see that here. So he agrees to hear Professor X out and go with him. Uh, but he even now, neither the reader nor Sunfire knows why Professor X is recruiting all these mutants. Next up, we see Colossus as Peter Rasputin. And we see him iron or armor up with a huge splash of energy that seems to have gone away in later appearances. They don't really show that anymore. But he does that to rescue his younger sister, Ileana, whom we've already discussed in the New Mutants podcast. But yeah, she is a very incidental player here. She's just someone who's enough to get Colossus to go out and destroy his neighbor's tractor. And that's about it. She's just the younger sister. We do not yet know that she's a mutant, and she is far from being trained as a sorceress. I think that she stays incidental until they decide to use her for new mutants. Is that correct? Yeah, she shows up just barely before then. She actually comes to visit Peter. Right, but she's still just his sister. She's, I think his whole family comes to visit, doesn't he? Yeah, and while she's visiting, that's when she gets kidnapped by Belasco and has her four-issue miniseries that's several years long for her. Her mutant powers emerge in terms of the stepping discs that come in and out of Limbo, named after the teleportation technology from Larry Niven's Ringworld, and she's trained as a sorceress. Yeah. Okay. So I just haven't gotten to that story yet then. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and then there's a lengthy discussion to recruit Colossus, and I, I do like this. As we mentioned way back in issue 72, he is very much the, the noble spirit and coming from at least the Marxist communist ideals. Marxist communism and the way communism have been implemented on this planet are not the same thing. Marxist communism is more like your Star Trek universe where we don't need money, everyone just works for the greater good and just takes what they need with a few minor incidentals. Right. So he's in there saying, you know, and so this professor wants to take me with him to teach me how to deal with my, my mutant powers. There is wisdom in his words, Papa, but I am happy here. Tell me, Papa, what should I do? And his father says, do as your heart tells you, my son, it will not betray you. To which Colossus responds, My heart tells me to stay, Papa, but my conscience tells me otherwise. I must go, Papa. At which point his father says that it is right that you do. One of the things I like about this, this is published in the Cold War. Not Cuban Missile Crisis height of the Cold War, but the Cold War was still going to run for a good ten years beyond this. And it's the Russians that are not... They, we don't see any anti-mutant sentiment from the Russian families. We see a lot of North American families who will not accept their mutant powers of their children... Peter's family has accepted it, and they're accepting his choice to go with Professor X. It, it was a nice decision on the part of Chris Claremont. When you're doing this international team, include a Russian and show them in a very positive light for the span of these pages. I do like that, because that's not always how comics tend to go. No, and especially if you look at the way Russians have been portrayed in Marvel in virtually any of their appearances in the prior 15 years. It's a major shift in maturity, right? It's not... Oh, you're Russian, therefore you're communist, therefore you're evil. So it even ends with them. Dosvidanya, Peter, our love goes with you. Do not worry, Mama. I will write to you. Goodbye, Papa. I will make you proud. We are already proud, my son. Right? It's that nice little send-off. Following that, we see Professor X round up Thunderbird, John Proudstar. He's an Apache, and like Sunfire, he's a bit of a jerk. He's got no need for white men to the point of, you know, even calling Professor X Custer and... You know, you can stuff a cactus, Custer, is what he specifically says. The white man needs me. That's tough. I owe him nothing but the grief he's given my people. Now beat it. And Professor X basically uses childish reverse psychology to bully him into joining. He's saying, I offer you the chance to help the world. Will you turn your back on me? Then perhaps what they say is true. Perhaps the Apache are all frightened, selfish children. Uh, no, I, I, I kind of feel <sighs> like we've just lost some of the points we gained from the previous scene. Yeah, I would agree with that. This is... uh. Jumping timelines here, when I read that passage, I skip to the image of Kitty Pride phasing through a wall, screaming, Professor Xavier's a jerk. Because <laughs> here, jerk is putting it mildly. Yeah. I mean, John Proudstar's a jerk, Sunfire's a jerk, Professor X is beyond jerk. If this was not a clean podcast, I'd tell you exactly what he is being right now. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's enough to get him to, to come in and hear him out. So from there we see Professor X, and this is where Cyclops is being reintroduced as the man who will fill you in on the details. So we're back in X-Mansion. Cyclops is here, but Cyclops alone. We don't have any of the other X-Men that were there. And this is where we find out that they were going to an island to track down a, a mutant. And it was including Havoc, Polaris, Jean Grey, Angel, Iceman. So it's not the lineup on the cover. The cover lineup were the founding five members from X-Men number one. 
but the story itself does use the active lineup from the end of issue 66, which could be jarring if you jumped on with the Neil Adams era, because that was not the active lineup in the last reprint issue, which I believe was 91. It would have been 91 or 92, but when the reprints ended, they ended before the Neil Adams run. Havoc didn't exist yet, so it may be mildly jarring if you didn't know your history. Anyway, the X-Men, all in flashback, they go to this island. Only Cyclops is released with no memory of how he was released after being captured by something. He doesn't have his optic blasts, although they do return, and they return in a more powerful form, so he gets a new visor. And the X-Men are being told that, okay, your new team, you've been recruited to help rescue the old team and the mutant that defeated us. To which point Sunfire says, incorrect, now you can go back to the island of Krakoa. Not I, I will have no part in this fool's errand. So Sunfire quits the team already. The rest of the team do go out there, and they split up into teams of two. Now, Sunfire decides to rejoin them in flight in classic Sunfire fashion. He is very hot-headed, which seems to be a common trait of characters with fire powers. <laughs> That's true. In any event, they all come back. So Sunfire and Nightcrawler go down in one team, Banshee and Wolverine in another. Storm and Colossus go together, and we see that they are not totally familiar. You know, Colossus jumps out of the plane without a parachute, Storm panics and catches him. And Colossus is saying, no, well, you know, I'll be fine. You know, when I armor up and land, I'm going to survive. He's going to leave a crater, but he'll be fine. (laughs) And then Cyclops takes Thunderbird with him, which is a good choice given Thunderbird's attitude up to this point. And everybody goes to a temple that has just mysteriously appeared out of nowhere. And they face different obstacles along the way, whether it's, you know, Wizard of Oz attacking trees, whether it's landslides, whether it's giant crabs. I hate it when I get the crabs. So do I. But they do all eventually manage to make it back, even against some flying eagles that Sunfire just goes after. They break into the temple and find the original team as they're being tied up and being fed. And when they do recover enough to communicate, you know, then we got the original team members, specifically Angel going, why Cyclops, why'd you come back for us? And Cyclops is confused. And Angel says, you fool, don't you understand? It wanted you to come back and bring others with you. It was all a trap and now it's too late. Haven't you realized yet? We came to the island looking for a mutant, but the mutant is the island itself. Dun, dun, dun. And this is where we get chapter four. Krakoa, the island that walks like a man. This monster thing comes up out of the ground, and yeah, it was feeding off them and released Cyclops specifically to bring him more food. And now the new and old teams work together to attack this thing. Polaris gets injured, and, you know, this is where if you've been reading it from the reprints, you learn that, hey, Havoc, he's Cyclops' brother. And, you know, he even says, I can't sacrifice a world to save one woman, Alex, even if she is the woman you love, at which point Alex responds, I swear to you, brother, I swear to you, brother or no, if if she dies, you know, and it kind of gets cut off, but you know, Havoc is going to be very pissed off. Mm -hmm. There's a a definite sibling dynamic here, so he doesn't just automatically follow Cyclops' leadership like the others do, especially the new recruits and those that have earned it. Havoc knows Cyclops as the brother he barely knows. The team does eventually manage to to put Krakoa down, or at least fend him off long enough to escape. And then we have to figure out what are we going to do with 13 X-Men once they are safely off the island, which has been ejected into space because in the Marvel Universe, Magnetism can do anything, including interact with the completely unrelated force of gravity. Well, I shouldn't say completely unrelated, but if you can get to energy levels where you get the unification of the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force, you're going to do a whole lot more to Earth than throw one island into space. (laughs) Comic books using just enough science to get in trouble since 1935. (laughs) Yeah. If you're dealing with that kind of energies, congratulations, you just killed the entire planet. Right, right. So this story has some big good points and bad points for me. I do like the recruitment scenes, most of them. The -hmm. only one I'm not a big fan of is Proudstar. Yeah. Or Warbird, Warpath, whatever. Thunderbird. See, he dies two issues later, so I don't even know his name. Spoilers. But after that, it's a bit of a punchy, punchy, run, run kind of story. Mm-hmm. And I get a little bit bored. Even whenever they reveal that the island itself is a mutant, it's like, that's the that's their big reveal. It's like, ooh, that's a cool page. More battles, more fighting, and denouement. So while I like the book, and I think it's a good story, it... Its importance is beyond the story itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. If recruiting everyone but Thunderbird was great. Thunderbird is not... I think he is the first proper X-Man. I'm not counting Mimic, but the first proper X-Man to actually die in the field. Mm, okay. 
right? Because Mimic was just, I don't think, he didn't strike me as a full team member. He was more like a friend to the team who sacrificed himself. Right. And the first time a character on the team dies, it should not feel like cause for celebration. But John Proudstar was written as such an unmitigated jerk from the start who brought out the worst in his team members, like brought out some of the worst in Professor Xavier making those racist comments just to get him to come along. I was happy with his removal. Right. A couple issues down the road. And you should never be happy with the death of a character who is supposed to be one of your heroes. And so a couple issues later, whenever Cyclops is the only one mourning Proudstar's death, and he's doing it more from a, I lost someone under my command kind of thing, then I actually lost somebody that I'm sad about losing. It still feels kind of weird there, but that's that's getting into the Chris Claremont issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the other issue I have with this one, this was ultimately resolved essentially by Polaris, right? So she's the one whose electrically charged burst has cut across the planet's primary lines of magnetic force, severing them, and for an instant about the island of Krakoa, gravity ceases to exist. So she saves the day, but she's not even on the team. Yeah, Polaris is the one that defeats Krakoa. Iceman is the one that gets them out of there. I mean, the only significant input made by any of these new recruits is Storm creating the massive storm that was going on during the battle, which seems to have no effect on the outcome of the battle. We see Sunfire and Wolverine and these guys, you know, attacking as well. Everyone does their attacks. But the outcome was determined entirely by the classic team. So at this point, I don't actually see the pressing need in this story to have launched a new team. They were launching a new team anyway, but it was resolved without the powers of the new team. It would have been nice had the resolution depended on the abilities of characters who were not present the first time. I wonder if, and this is just speculation, but I wonder, the the first few years of this new run do a lot to discuss how this new team is taking a lot of work to come together as a team. Mm-hmm. And they they have some failures before they have successes. In fact, the first time Magneto comes back, Cyclops is like, oh, crap. We are so not ready for this. And they lose. Yeah. And so I wonder if the fact that they they didn't do much beyond getting Cyclops into where everyone's being held prisoner. And then after that, everyone else takes over. I wonder if that was intentionally done because of that theme or if it just happens to come about that way. Yeah. I mean, we get ideas that Kirkoa is a powerful enough mutant to plant the subliminal message in Cyclops' mind and Charles Xavier's mind to bring new characters. But in terms of showcasing these new characters, I don't think it does a particularly good job. No, it doesn't really. And that's part of what the limitation is. I mean, the the character who gets the best showcase as a new individual with interesting abilities is Colossus, and that showcase is saving Ilyana. It's not in fighting the island of Krakoa, right? We get Storm creating the severe storms here and in Africa. But it's Iceman who creates the thing of ice that's going to bring them out. Then they realize that, well, this is before they have the SR-71 Blackbird. Right. right? That comes a bit later. Yeah, their stratajet is watertight and apparently able to float by being less dense than water, which I suppose is quite possible. But Well, in comics, if you have just like a little bit of air in something, doesn't matter how big the something is, it can float on water. Yeah, and I honestly don't know that if you have a modern plane that's airtight and intact, that may float as well. Because, you know, buoyancy is an issue with all aircraft. Yeah. Speaking of Storm in Africa... We get so much of her backstory that has nothing to do with being a weather goddess that I have to wonder just how long she was pretending to be a weather goddess. It's like five minutes um, before Charles Xavier showed up or what? Because she's a street thief. She's in love with Black Panther. She's all these other things except a weather goddess. But on the day that Charles Xavier showed up, she was a weather goddess. Yeah, they did fill in a lot of her backstory, including making her an American instead of part of this international team. Wow. Right. They decided that, no, she was born in America and just went to Africa when she's about six months old and doesn't remember it. I think I remember that because that was part. Yeah, that was actually done early on. Yeah, that's hmm. But it is a good book. I was primarily a Spider-Man fan growing up, but there was a phase in my comics reading whenever I was going out and getting the Marvel Masterworks of some of this. Some of the teams and characters I knew about but weren't following their new stuff because I didn't know very much about them. And one of the things I bought was the Marvel Masterworks collection of the X-Men numbers 1 through 10, which, of course, is the 05 team, the original five members. I got a lot of affection for that team. 
and I got to the point where I did not want to read any of the 1970s giant size and forward stuff until I'd read all of those issues. So I've only first read giant size X-Men number one, probably six years ago, maybe eight years ago at this point, six years ago. So it's a relatively new experience for me, but I mean, to say that the Claremont run of X-Men that came out as a result of this book, to say that that's a huge and important read for any Marvel Comics fan is, is one of the biggest understatements ever. I do mm-hmm. definitely want more 80s Claremont X-Men in me as a, you know, that came out of the story, but this story itself was not something I read as a kid. It's something I read only because it was the next X-Men thing after I read all the original stuff. Yeah, for me this is one, when I got back into collecting comics, I was starting with the essentials for a lot of these. I had read some of the X-Men in my original collections, right? largely through classic X-Men and X-Factor. So I knew the original five members as the X-Factor lineup. And when I started reading classic X-Men, they were up to reprinting, I believe it was originally issue 120. It was the part two of the two-part Battle with Moses Magnum, right before they introduced Alpha Flight. Now, at the time, I had a few Marvel Masterworks number ones. I had the first Incredible Hulk. I had Amazing Fantasy 15. Because when they first started the hardcover Masterworks line, they promoted it by doing Masterworks quality paper and reprint colors on single issues of the like the first issues that were collected in these Masterworks. I remember that, yeah. Now, when I first read Essential on, or Essential X-Men Volume 1 that started with giant-sized X-Men, I know I had read the story before. So I'm wondering if there was one of those Masterworks out there that I had read or if I'd read it in some other reprint. Because the trade, I didn't collect trades, I was only buying single issues, so I suspect that I had the giant size X-Men masterwork, or had somehow tracked down a reprint of classic X-Men number one, because the story did seem familiar to me. But I, this, this may be, in terms of the number of times I have read an issue, this may be the second most read issue for me on the whole 75 Marvels countdown. And it's, as we've said, the story itself has flaws, but in terms of the era it launched, it is, the definitive X-Men run, by and large, I would say is the one that, that kicks off with this issue and goes at least until the end of Days of Future Past. If you can read from Giant Size X-Men number one up to Uncanny X-Men number 142 and don't walk away from that saying, I want to read more X-Men, nothing is going to make you want to read more X-Men. <laughs> it's important to note, I think, that Chris Claremont is not Len Wein and Len Wein is not Chris Claremont. So if you don't know this era and you're wanting that awesome X-Men read, you might want to forgive Giant Size X-Men 1, X-Men 95, 96, or was it 94? So from here, issues 92 and 93 were also reprints. 93 specifically reprinted X-Men issue 45 and Journey into Mystery 74, The Mechanical Men. Issue 94 is where... It the hands changed. So that's where the Okay, so ninety four and ninety five, which would have been Giants has X Men too, but they plan to make it a so those are the Len Wein issues, and then Chris Claremont comes on with ninety six. Chris Claremont already has uh scripting credits with ninety four. Okay. So he was Len Wein's assistant. Len Wein plotted ninety four, and he's got plotting credit on ninety five where Chris Claremont is down as the scripter, and then Chris Claremont becomes the solo well, he's actually still scripting with Bill Mantlow plotting on ninety six. And then, so with issue 97, with that one, we're down to Chris Claremont solo. Okay. So he had plot assists on 94, 95, 96, but Claremont had been scripting from 94. So with my main punchline being that, like, the era that we're talking about doesn't really start getting going till almost issue 100. So it is a beast that changes a lot in those first few issues. Definitely recommend starting with Giants as X-Men number one but be prepared for some, you know, changes in the way stories are told leading into where Chris Claremont gets his feet under him and you go into the whole, the the Xavier's Dream saga, which is what I call that first really huge arc mm-hmm. that, that takes from the beginning of Chris Claremont on into, I think, issue 108, maybe. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on, and it is best to start with Giant Size number one because Chris Claremont loves to mine the past. He loves to leave dangling plot threads. Apparently, he, his run lasted, what, about a decade? possibly more. He had a huge run on X-Men, and apparently he was ready to quit a few times when he's he would come into the office saying, I'm out of ideas, and Zetter was just keeping track of the plot threads he'd seated and not followed up on, and say, well, you know what? You never followed up on this. Do you want to do that first? And then Claremont would get another year out of that. 
because the two issues he took to wrap that plot thread up sparked some other ideas. And you come back a year later going, I think I'm done. And his editor would just hand him another dangling plot thread. Because he was the expert at the long game. He would introduce mm-hmm. stuff and then he wouldn't come back to it for a long time. Not because he didn't have plans for it, just because he had so many things he wanted to do. And he only has 20 pages a month to do it in or 20 pages every two months at first to do it in. Yeah. And and in so doing, he would sometimes forget things he had introduced. Yeah, it was a bi-monthly book, and this was an era before the the real birth of the direct market. The direct market store started during the Claremont era, but when he first started, it w- you'd be hard-pressed to find stories that last longer than three issues in any book, simply because you could not guarantee that the retailers would still be carrying that title when the story ended. They wouldn't necessarily get continuous runs at any random retailer. There were exceptions to that. The Obviously, the Kree-Skrull War lasted longer than that, but Avengers was Marvel's number one selling title. If they carried Marvel product, they were probably going to be carrying the Avengers, so that was a fairly safe bet. A lot of the other books, they didn't like the long story arcs because the readers found it hard to get all the pieces. With Chris Claremont, we will discuss the Dark Phoenix saga, and I do mean we. John's back for that one as well. Yay! Yeah, later on in this series... That's usually considered issues 129 to 136 or 138, which is kind of longish for the story arc. But that story, in many respects, really starts with issue 100. Yeah. So once the Phoenix powers come into play at the very beginning, yeah. Yeah. So in an era where a four-issue story arc is rare and considered long, we've got 40-issue stories going on in Claremont's X-Men. Sometimes bi-monthly. So that's like 80 months or it could be at times, you know, longer than that. So it's 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 crazy just how much he would do, and it works so well and and hit so many so many of the right buttons, and fans look back on it with so much glee and, and and joy. And I wonder how that's influenced our expectations for stories now, mm-hmm. because there are times that I've encountered stories where a six issue dramatic arc will end. I say six issue as, as a generic number and you won't have all of the answers and you won't have all of the pieces and you don't yeah. know as a current reader, but that writer is actually going to come back a year later and return to some of those ideas. And mm-hmm. so it's a little bit hard. I, I, I think reader, the readership of today is torn between wanting that successful long game and wanting mm-hmm. our immediate gratification that we're accustomed to. And nowadays, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. It, it's a hard line to walk. I would say of the the current or the more recent runs, I would say Hickman's Fantastic Four might have walked that line best, where you've got a lot of issues where structurally they're done in one, but if you read his run on Fantastic Four start to finish, it is one giant story, right? The first issue he wrote planted seeds for the last issue he wrote in a fairly long plot line. But yeah, by and large, you could see the influence of this kind of storytelling, because this is the first time it showed up in comics, and you can see it elsewhere. I mean, look at, at Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon is a third-generation TV writer. His father and grandfather both wrote in TV. He met Andy Griffith when the Andy Griffith show, you know, was still big. Maybe not necessarily new, but still in reruns and well-known. You know, his grandfather wrote for the Dick Van Dyke show. His father wrote for TV. The first autograph that Joss Whedon ever wanted was Stan Lee's, and he made his father drive two hours to get to the convention where that would be possible. And you go back and watch those first couple seasons of Buffy, and it's very much comic book storytelling. In his case, I'd say it's more influenced by like the Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Amazing Spider-Man era. With this first couple of seasons of Buffy, you know, each, for the most part, each new installment, each new issue or episode, aside from the rare two-parters, has got sort of the villain of the week or the villain of the month idea. But the personal lives march on, and there is an ongoing saga. And that's a lot of what Claremont does here. If you read Claremont's X-Men run that starts with this Len Wein issue, when Claremont was just his assistant, you will often get villains where the villain story is maybe two, possibly three issues, often one. I mean, from here we go into a two-part Count Nefarious story, and there's a a two-part Mysterio story, and, you know, a Vanisher story, and Mesmero, and it's that, you know, Magneto Mesmero that brings the Beast back into the X-Men fold. There's a lot of one- and two-issue villain stories here, but the personal lives of this team and the way they're meshing together there is only one way to read it, even without the numbers on the cover. If you buy one of those, you know, illegally sold where they strip the cover to get the refund and then just buy the contents, if you've got a bunch of coverless issues and don't read the indicia for the issue numbers, you could pay attention to the information on the page 
and put the entire hundred and some issue Claremont run on the X-Men in sequence. Right. And say it must be in this order. Right. It, as we were talking about with the, the status quo on the Marvel two and one annual number seven episode, this is one of the first comic series from this era that really didn't have a status quo. I mean, you can look at the X-Men. They got a status quo in the sense that for a large part in the eighties, they're based out of the X-Mansion. There is a point where they move to Australia, but the team dynamics and team rosters change frequently enough that you could argue that there's not a huge status quo for the X-Men. And that starts with Claremont. And he just does it so well. It's Peter Parker's Spider-Man is one of those characters that is often read for the soap opera quality of his personal life. The X-Men is one of those that is the soap opera quality of the superhero narrative. It's a long game. And the fact that it's one writer and one vision for, like you said, over a decade, wasn't he, didn't he last right up until the launch of X-Men in 1990? He had a brief hiatus before that, I believe. In my read through him up to about 1989 right now of reading every X book in chronological order. Up to that point, he's still writing. But I believe there's sort of a brief period where he's not, and then he comes back for that launch and disappears again shortly thereafter. Okay, so 1975, 1976, when he is, you know, doing it all on his own, up until 1990, that's that's a decade and a half of one writer and one concept. Yeah. I can't think of another instance in comic book history where that has been the case. Yeah, there's runs, I mean, you've got the Peter David Hulk, but Peter David didn't also do 54 issues of a spinoff like Claremont <laughs> did with New Mutants. And you have the the, um, the Stanley Jack Kirby run on, on Fantastic Four, but yeah, that was nine years, not ten. Yeah, and again, you've got your uh, Bendis Bagley run on Ultimate Spider-Man, which by issue count is 110, just because they both work so quickly. But some of those are by yeah. month, uh, not by some of those are by weekly, so they're coming out. It's like the opposite of the X Men, which would take two months between issues, and so is is even longer than it sounds by its issue count. Ultimate Spider-Man is shorter than it sounds by its issue count because it's coming out so quickly. Yeah, because uh, Bendis and Bagley can comfortably do 15 to 16 issues a year. And at one point they were talking about an Ultimate X-Men crossover in an event that would have impacted Ultimate Spider-Man. And Bendis uh, pointed out in the meeting, okay, but that involves some rewriting because I'm 30 issues ahead. And they turned to <laughs> Bagley and they realized they'd have to pay him again for those issues. And they went to Mark Bagley and said, okay, where are you? And Bagley's going, I'm 20 issues ahead. And that's when they realized these guys can do 15 to 16 issues a year comfortably. So they decided, okay, for the next few years, Ultimate Spider-Man is going to be publishing 18 issues a year instead of 12 to catch up on this backlog so we can do these crossovers. Wow, that's funny. And then after that, we're going to do it like the 15 to 16 issue cycle that you guys can keep up with just to, to keep it all together. But those are rare. And again, that's been a Magley on one title. Nobody had what Chris Claremont was doing, which was running that on Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants for a time. And he only agreed to hand off X-Factor to someone else when he was allowed to have inputs in the plotting sessions. So he's basically running a franchise and doing most of the writing himself. Yeah. For for a decade and a half. <laughs> yeah, and by and large, doing it quite well. The, the competition he has or, or the comparable stuff as far as sales and popularity were the new Teen Titans and the Legion of Superheroes. And those were really big in the early 80s, but it was not as extensive a run or as extensive a quality. It did not stay as big for as long as Claremont's X-Men. No, and when Claremont and Jim Lee did X-Men number one, and I believe Claremont was on the first eight issues of that relaunch in 1990, that became the number one selling single issue in history. And I think it may still hold that title. It's at, I believe, 8 million copies of X-Men number one. Now, some of that was 90s bloat with connecting covers, so people were buying five copies of it or six copies. I would say that that was one of the things that helped to trigger 90s bloat, because it was 1990. There was no 90s yet. Yeah. But X-Men number one was so freaking huge that mm -hmm. people started changing how they bought comics after that. Yeah, and it was one of the first with the multiple covers, because they had connecting covers, so there were... I believe four pieces to it, where covers A, B, and C were X-Men that were on the team, and D was Magneto. That sounds right, They were yeah. all attacking. And there was another version that was a fold-out cover that had all four of them on it. And they're saying you could pick which cover you want. And that's when they realized some buyers weren't picking a cover. Some of them were buying them all. 
Mm-hmm. So they realized one customer could buy this comic five times if you gave it five covers. And I think that's the point where all of those multiple cover variants started. Now, some of that is still happening today, but I never in my life have I paid extra for a cover, and I don't intend yeah. ever to do so. And some people like to have that completest and get all the copies and all the instances of a particular issue, but the market is shifting in a way that is no longer friendly to those people because there are covers that are intentionally put out so exceedingly rare so that one person is going to get this really cool cover. Mm-hmm. But you as a collector of all things, like it's really, really, um, it's a trope of Valiant fans to get all of Valiant. And you just can't do that anymore unless you're forking over tons of cash every month for that really mm-hmm. rare instead of cover. Yeah, there's some of that with Titan with the Doctor Who covers for those ongoing mm. series now. I mean, that's it. this has to be driving people up the wall with the Ant-Man variant. Pulling the curtain back a bit, this is being recorded the Saturday after Ant-Man number one came out in January 2015. And that variant, I think there's something like a thousand different versions where they all have the same background, and each individually numbered comic has a different size Ant-Man on it. So the idea is that Ant-Man will shrink if you have these. (laughs) So because so many of these are unique, it is actually impossible, I would say, for one person to own them all because there's people who say, no, this is my shrinking variant and it's not for sale. <laughs> that is funny. I knew I had heard somewhere about the Ant-Man variants. They were different sizes, but I hadn't put together with the idea of, okay, well, if you have all 1,500 of these and turn them into a flip book, Ant-Man will shrink on your cover. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> That's what they've got. There's, you know, a lot of retailer exclusive covers have been coming out lately, so... You know, if you order above X number of copies, we will put your store on the cover. Right. There was an issue of Amazing Spider-Man where he was fighting someone on this variant cover, and there was a comic store getting bashed in the background. And if you ordered X number of copies, well, that store could be your store. I like that sort of thing. That That's just fun. Mm-hmm. It makes it personal. It makes it, you know, to go and get something that's, that's kind of, it's, it's not quite a signed cover, but it is definitely personalized for your particular branch of the fandom. It is. And it's good for the people who don't go for it you know, to the conventions or something, because it's still a unique product. Right. Right. If that's your store, I could say, hey, that's my store on the comic cover. That's the kind of thing where I might shell out a few more bucks for it. But up to this point, I have I haven't paid extra for covers. Even when DC did their 3D cover variants in September for Future's End, I was the guy who was specifically ordering the two ninety nine two 2D cover variants rather than paying three ninety nine for the 3D. Right. Uh, back to Giant Size X-Men number one. Yes. The reason we are here today. Yeah, one of the things that we like to discuss is the significance of the issue. I think we've covered that. You know, it put Wolverine in the spotlight. It created a series of new characters who are still around today, many of whom have had their solo books or have their solo books today. This ushered in a new era for the X-Men. Without this, we do not have the Brian Singer film from the year 2000. Without the Brian Singer film from the year 2000, we don't have the Sam Raimi Spider-Man film that followed. Without the Sam Raimi Spider-Man film proving that it's not just one franchise, it's not just Blade, these are not anomalies, we don't have Marvel creating their own in-house movie studios. And without Marvel in-house studios, we don't have the Avengers, we don't have Guardians of the Galaxy, we don't have Iron Man on film as we are, as we have it today. This is one of the catalysts of the modern TV, movie, and comics market. Mm-hmm. So... I think we can say it's significant and has a clear impact on the comics industry and outside the comics industry. It's just, it was the first in a long chain of dominoes that brought us to where we are now. Yeah, it's huge. Do you want to do deeper meanings? Because I had two. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's about all we have left, so go for it. One theme that I felt was important in the story is that mutants are very important. They must be fought for and preserved. It's an idea that will eventually be taken and used as metaphor for different minorities. It's not really being used in that sense now, but this is a group of people that are fighting for their right to exist and they're fighting for their right to be there. They're not yet fighting for the right to party. They're that not comes yet. later. The only exception to that is if the mutant is a giant island feeding on your protagonist, then it needs to be destroyed. The second one that I wrote down is banding together as a team despite personal differences. Because these guys do not get along. And that had been done a little bit in the Avengers before this. And by 2015, it's old hat for the industry. But it was new to the X-Men at the time. Because the 05 X-Men, they were friends. They occasionally had spats, but they were friends. These guys are not friends. And they're going to have to figure out how to be a team. 
Yeah, Beast and Iceman would frequently go on double dates and listen to really bad vocal poetry. Yeah. That was very common. Like you said, it established that friendship and the camaraderie. In this, there's none of that yet. This is a group of strangers, and the ones that make clear their place or clearly show themselves and where they fit on the team are Thunderbird and Sunfire. So the guy who quits and the guy who dies. <laughs> and you mentioned Wolverine in the spotlight earlier. I would actually differ that a little bit because Wolverine is just one of the team at this point. There's nothing really about him at this point to make him special as a character. And I remember a lot of the letters from the few years after this, people are saying, throw Wolverine out. He's he's done. There's nothing to him. Wolverine doesn't come into his own until John Byrne is drawing. That, yeah. That's for sure. There's that issue when he's like in the sewers trying to go and save the team. He has like claw his way up through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's part of the Dark Phoenix saga. And that's because John Byrne is Canadian. And when he found out they were ready to throw Wolverine off the team, he's going, no, 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 you're not ditching the only Canadian. Let me work with him. <laughs> and he was the champion of Wolverine. What I meant putting Wolverine in the spotlight, I meant if Wolverine had not been put into giant-sized X-Men number one, he may have been the obscure two-issue character only from Hulk number 180 and 181. Yeah. There was no compelling reason for him to appear again at the end of Hulk 181. And I think the only reason he does come in here is because it's the same guy writing both. Yeah. Len Wein has been tasked with making an international team. And he already has a Canadian character he's already created. <laughs> yes. I've got this guy. There we go. There's an easy one to plug. Right. And Canadians are, by and large, we are probably closer to Americans in terms of cultural identity than any other country. So if you're Canadian or American and know the other side, it's easy to point to the differences. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to put yourself in the headspace of a member of another country and a member of another nationality, as an American, Canadians are kind of the low-hanging fruit for doing that, right? It, it, we're some of the easiest to write for just because our cultures are so similar. And part of that is because our own, the National Film Board and the Canadian film industry, when it was forming, there was a conscious choice to not compete with the U.S. industry and to focus on areas that the U.S. wasn't focusing on. So the Canadian film industry has had a huge focus on animation and documentaries from the start that the U.S. didn't really have, which means when you're turning on the TV at the end of the night and looking for something to entertain you, by and large, Canadians are watching American product because we don't have the competitive fictional dramas and comedies with live-action performers. I mean, it's been turning around a little bit in the last few years. You know, we've got your your Due Souths, which was done in collaboration and then finished as a Canadian-only production. You've got your Rookie Blues. You've got some that are cross-border, often in partnerships. You've got a lot of U.S. product being filmed in Canada, but it's still U.S. creators and U.S. money by and large. They're just saying, oh, it's cheaper to do it in Vancouver? Well, let's do it in Vancouver. So, yeah, he, he's an easy one to plug in. Well, I guess we're into the top 50 by this point, aren't we? We are. We're at number 48. So I, I, there's no question in my mind that this story merits being the top 50 greatest Marvels of all time. I might actually put it a bit higher because of its significance, even though, as we said, it's possibly more significant than the actual quality of the story might merit. But it's still a good story. It's just a bit by the numbers. Yeah. I am a bit surprised that it beat out Miller's Wolverine, <laughs> but I'm not surprised that it's a couple notches below Whedon's Astonishing Run. Yeah. And it's I, I love Whedon's Astonishing Run. But that's, as we've discussed many times before, and we'll discuss many times again, things seem to land on this list based both on significance to continuity and on entertainment value. This could do a little bit better in the entertainment value department, not in the significance. Whereas Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men, it's it's short on the significance, but I'd put it very, very high in the entertainment value. Yeah, yeah. And that's true of a few things coming after it. I mean, I struggle with the idea that Ultimate's number one got a higher placement on the list than giant-sized X-Men number one. Yeah. Yeah, I'll go into that in more detail <laughs> <laughs> in six weeks' time. So I think that's about all we have to say. As we said, I don't know if I'd recommend reading this issue in isolation, but if you're interested in reading a formative run on the X-Men, start here, go to at least issue 142. Right, right. And I would, I might extend that to 150. Okay. Anyway, the next up in the podcast, next week we are discussing... Avengers the Korvax Saga, which is Avengers issue 170 to 177. That's available in Avengers the Korvax Saga, uh, collected trade paperback, as well as on DVD-ROM, Marvel Digital Unlimited, and Comixology. So, and then I'll see you the week after that. Yeah, so thanks for joining us this week, John, and we will see you in two weeks 
for discussion of Amazing Spider-Man 700. Woohoo! All right, and the listeners, please join us again next week. Leave reviews on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever else you're finding it. And thank you for listening. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil... You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare?